Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Three U.S. soldiers are killed in a drone strike in Jordan. Droves of farmers descend on Paris. A Texas-bound Take Our Border Back convoy raises $125,000. China's Evergrande Group is ordered to liquidate. Palestinian aid is pulled after UN staff are accused of participating in Hamas's October 7th attack. Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso withdraw from ECOWAS. Alexander Stubb wins the first round of Finland's presidential election. Joe Manchin suggests he could potentially run for U.S. president. The U.K. says it will ban disposable vapes. And politicians criticize EU calls for gendered language to be scrapped. In our top story, tragic news in Jordan as three U.S. soldiers are dead after a drone strike on a military base. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Associated Press, The Telegraph, BBC News, The Times UK, and CNN. Three American soldiers were reportedly killed and at least 34 others injured in a drone strike in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border, according to U.S. officials. The first military fatalities amid the raging Israel-Hamas war marked the latest escalation of simmering regional tensions. U.S. President Joe Biden blamed Iran-backed proxies for the attack on a key logistical support base in Jordan known as Tower 22, where about 350 U.S. troops are stationed, according to the U.S. military. He said the U.S. will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. In a Monday statement, Iran denied any involvement in the attack, but the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, an umbrella organization of pro-Iranian militias formed after Israel started its military campaign in Gaza, reportedly claimed responsibility. It also claimed to have struck nearby U.S. bases in Shadadi and Rukban in Syria. Meanwhile, a Jordan government spokesman told state media that Sunday's attack targeted the Al-Tanif base at the Syrian-Jordanian border and did not occur in his country. U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq had been attacked at least 97 times since October 17th, U.S. officials said back in December. Iran-backed Hamas described Sunday's attack as the latest message to the U.S. and Israel to stop what it described as, quote, the killing of innocent people in Gaza, claiming the U.S.'s backing for Israel risked a regional explosion. While the Biden administration is coming under increasing domestic political pressure from some Republicans to take direct retaliatory action against Iran following the latest attack on U.S. forces, the U.S. military maintains it wants to avoid tensions escalating into a full-blown regional war. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We also have some narrative spins on this story, starting with an anti-Iran narrative from The Washington Post. Following continuous attacks on U.S. regional targets, Iran has now crossed a red line with the deaths of U.S. military personnel. The ongoing war in the Middle East may be asymmetrical, but that shouldn't deter Washington from taking more decisive military action, directly or indirectly, against an Iranian regime that's escalating tensions. The pro-Iran narrative comes from IRNA. Given the U.S.'s role in the raging conflict in the Middle East, it was only a matter of time before American military personnel suffered casualties. Resistance groups in the region have long criticized American hegemony for supporting Israel's atrocities on Palestinians. It's clear that the U.S. is now trying to unilaterally escalate the conflict. 
and a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 14% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before the year 2025. Farmers block motorways with tractor barricades as the siege of Paris begins. The facts on this story are agreed upon by the Associated Press, AFP, BBC News, the Associated Press, France 24, and Reuters. French farmers descended on Paris with tractor barricades and slow-driving convoys on Monday after the government's pro-agriculture measures failed to defuse their protests for better pay and streamline regulations. The protesters characterized their intent to disrupt Paris as a siege. The country's two largest farming unions have said that their members would block the Runzi wholesale food market as well as occupy all the major roads leading to the capital to pressure the government to meet their demands. This comes after Prime Minister Gabriel Attal announced 10 immediate concessions to protesting farmers on Friday, including simplifying regulations and dropping a plan that would increase fuel costs. He also promised that France would continue to object to the EU-Mercosur trade deal, which has been under negotiation for years and sowed seeds of discontent among farmers about competition with Latin American countries. According to the AFP, Atal was expected to meet with union leaders later on Monday. Meanwhile, Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin has directed security officials to prevent demonstrators from blocking routes to Paris airports or occupying the Runzi market, as well as any incursion into the capital itself. Farm income in France has reportedly fallen considerably amid a push to tackle food inflation, leaving producers unable to cover high costs for energy and transport. Similar protests have been seen elsewhere in Europe, with farmers disrupting traffic around Brussels on Monday and nearly bringing Berlin to a standstill earlier this month. Scott, thank you for presenting the facts. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Zero Hedge. Echoing the peasant wars of the Middle Ages, farmers in Europe are now staging mass demonstrations against the crumbling post-war European power structures that have shifted onto their own food suppliers the burdens of sustaining the prolonged agony of the neoliberal U.S. world empire. Yet mainstream media have downplayed this continent-wide farming revolution as a minor development, as if they have been instructed what and what not to cover. Euractive brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Farmers have reasons to protest, but the far right has fueled their outrage against the EU with false claims to attract new voters in the run-up to European elections this summer, given that only one quarter of the French farming community cast a far-right vote in the past presidential elections. Meanwhile, the French government has been left with a delicate balance to walk as it must meet their demands to prevent another volatile chapter in the Zilezan Yellow Vests movement. As we check in with Metaculus for their nerd narrative, they say there's a 5% chance that Emmanuel Macron will cease being president of France before 2027. The farming subsidies situation is so complex and it's confusing. Like you hear in America sometimes about, you know, farmers are being, pork farmers are being paid to destroy their their pork crop in order to keep the prices high. And, you know, we're giving corn farmers subsidies and all these things. I mean, it's probably to prevent stuff like this, right? Right. Well, and here's what's happening now. I don't know if you've heard this, but farmers here in the Midwest, or at least in the Midwest in the U.S., they're being fined for, uh, you know, the, the, the large round bales of hay. Yeah, the big yeah. like cylinder ones. Yeah, the big cylinder ones. Yeah, they're, they're being fined seven hundred fifty dollars per bale if they're not removed within a certain date, which is crazy. Wow. Well, yeah. I, but but because the livestock couldn't get any square meals. Oh. <laughs> it's pretty no. good. It it could be true. 
A Texas-bound Take Our Border Back convoy raises $125,000 in donations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, The Messenger, Vice, News Nation, and Daily Caller. A protest convoy heading to the U.S. southern border, which was planned on a telegram channel named, quote, Take Our Border Back by the self-proclaimed, quote, Army of God, wishing to send a message to officials they claim are enabling thousands of undocumented migrants to cross into the U.S., has raised over $125,000 in donations. The convoy, which called on active and retired law enforcement and military and any, quote, law-abiding, freedom-loving Americans to join their cause, reportedly plans to hold rallies on February 3rd in Eagle Pass, Texas, Yuma, Arizona, and San Ysidro, California. However, by noon Monday, a few hours after departing Virginia Beach, the convoy, which was expected to be joined by hundreds of thousands of participants, had amassed only a few dozen participants. Concern over entrapment by federal agents reportedly was discouraging potential participants. This comes as the border standoff between Texas and the White House is escalating in the wake of a Supreme Court ruling that allows federal agents to remove razor wire installed along the border. Some Democrats are urging Biden to nationalize the Texas National Guard, while 25 GOP governors have expressed support for Governor Greg Abbott. According to data from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, as of Friday, an all-time high monthly total of migrant encounters at the southern border, more than 300,000 at both parts of entry and between ports of entry, was recorded in December. Thanks, Eric. We have some opposing political narratives on this story. Let's start with the Republican narrative from the Gateway Pundit. The Biden administration has failed to enforce immigration laws and secure the border, allowing millions to illegally enter the U.S. This peaceful trucker convoy will represent the American people and show that enough is enough while demanding the president to do his job. Follow that with a Democratic narrative coming from Wired. As tensions rise between Texas and the federal government over immigration, far-right extremists who claim that a new civil war is looming are attempting to organize an armed convoy to the southern border. It's evident that they're planning anything but peaceful rallies. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 47% chance that if at least one U.S. state secedes before January 1st, 2071, it will be Texas. News from China, Evergrande is ordered to liquidate amid a property crisis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, The Independent, The Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. On Monday, Hong Kong's high court ordered Evergrande Group, China's struggling real estate giant, to liquidate its operations after it failed to reach an agreement on how to restructure its vast debt. The property sector accounts for nearly 25% of China's economy, and Evergrande's default in 2021 sent shockwaves through international financial markets, leaving it to owe more than $300 billion. Judge Linda Chan ordered the seizure and sale of the company's assets to satisfy outstanding debts after it failed to devise an acceptable debt restructuring plan. Following the court order, the company's shares experienced a 20% drop in the Hong Kong market before trading was suspended. According to C.U. Sean, the CEO of Evergrande, the injunction won't have an impact on the business operations in mainland China or its other offshore divisions outside of Hong Kong. Chinese regulators have said that Evergrande's failure is manageable, but there's a significant risk that the liquidation order will undermine the Chinese financial system as Evergrande attempts to hand over paid-for housing to families who invested their life savings. According to court documents, Evergrande owes foreign creditors $25.4 billion. Its liabilities exceed its assets, which total $240 billion. It's indisputable that the company is grossly insolvent and cannot pay its debts, the documents say. 
As a former British colony, Hong Kong's common law system is distinct from communist-ruled China. It's unclear if mainland courts will recognize the insolvency and restructuring actions filed in Hong Kong. Analysts believe Evergrande will serve as a test case. The failure of mainland China to recognize the liquidation order would result in substantial financial losses for foreign creditors with investments in Evergrande, likely undermining investor trust in the Chinese financial system. Thank you, Scott. The anti-China narrative comes from DW. This is bad news for Beijing's leaders. Over the past two decades, China's real estate sector has been a major economic driver. But massive property speculation has fueled a huge real estate bubble that Beijing has been slow to resolve. Several smaller property developers have already been forced into bankruptcy, and Evergrande's liquidation order has the potential to destabilize China's entire financial system. And the pro-China narrative from the Global Times. There's still much uncertainty around Evergrande's liquidation procedure, but there has been quite a bit of media hype. The procedure will take months, if not years, but will most likely have a minor impact on the general market. The PRC's overall recovery in the real estate sector is still proceeding well, and the liquidation request is a common legal procedure in Hong Kong's legal system. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 10% chance that China's GDP will overtake the U.S. before January 1st, 2030. The U.N. chief urges countries to reconsider as funding for Palestinian aid collapses. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, UNRWA, and the Associated Press. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres this weekend urged 10 countries who withdrew funding from the primary aid agency in Gaza to reconsider, stating that Palestinians should not be penalized as a whole for the actions of a few aid workers. This comes after the UN's Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, reported Friday that, according to Israeli authorities, there were allegations that several UNRWA staff participated in the October 7th attack on Israel. UNRWA said that while a full investigation is ongoing, it decided to fire the alleged members of staff. It also reiterated its condemnation of the October 7th attacks and called for hostages held by Hamas to be released immediately. The agency hires 13,000 staff in the Gaza Strip, most of them Palestinians. With the Israel-Hamas war killing upwards of 26,000 Palestinians and with 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people internally displaced, UNRWA chief Philippe Lazzarini said that more than 2 million Palestinians in Gaza relied on the agency for, quote, sheer survival. After Lazzarini announced the probe into UNRWA staff, the U.S., one of the largest donors to the agency, disclosed that a total of 12 employees were under investigation. The U.S. also announced that it had immediately suspended funding to the organization, with countries including Britain, Germany, and Italy soon following suit. Later, Lazzarini said he was shocked by the decisions taken by the 10 countries, stating that the agency's life-saving assistance will soon dry up and that, quote, famine looms in Gaza. He said on X, he also said Palestinians in Gaza did not need this additional collective punishment. This stains all of us. Thanks, Eric. Al Monitor brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. The decision to halt all funding to the UNRWA will push Gaza to the brink of famine. Israel has already hindered the agency from helping the Palestinian people by bombing several of its locations, but now the humanitarian body could run out of all supplies within a month. This is not about punishing Hamas, but starving Palestinians. The Times of Israel has the pro-Israel narrative. Reports into what some of these UNRWA staff did on the day of October 7th are appalling, 
and at the very least fall way below the standard expected by the UN. Funding to UNRWA should be halted until this mess is cleaned up and the agency is replaced with a more appropriate humanitarian delivery structure. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in Gaza by June 2024. Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger withdraw from ECOWAS. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ghana Web, Washington Post, BBC News, DW, the Premium Times of Nigeria, and Al Jazeera. Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso on Sunday announced their decision to leave the 15-nation Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS. The three West African countries were suspended from and hit with sanctions by ECOWAS following the overthrow of their respective democratically elected governments. In a televised joint statement, the military-run governments pointed out that their decision was made in complete sovereignty and accused ECOWAS of abandoning the ideals of its founding fathers and pan-Africanism. They also alleged that foreign powers were influencing the organization. The Nigerian junta claimed ECOWAS, founded in 1975, largely failed to support its three founding members in their existential fight against terrorism and insecurity. In 2023, the three military-led governments formed the Alliance of Sahel States, or AES, after pulling out of the international anti-Islamic insurgency group known as G5. Following the announcement, ECOWAS said it had not yet received formal notification of the decision to exit the bloc and that the three countries remained important members. It added that ECOWAS had been working with the three coup-hit countries to restore constitutional order and remained committed to negotiating a solution to solve political differences. Relations between the three governments and ECOWAS deteriorated following military coups in Mali in 2020, Burkina Faso in 2022, and Niger, a key Western security partner, in 2023. In addition to sanctions, ECOWAS threatened to reinstate the elected government in Niger through a military intervention. Under the ECOWAS treaty, member states intending to terminate their membership must submit written notice within one year in advance and remain bound by the treaty's terms during that year. While committing to a return to civilian rule by different dates, all three countries insist that their security remains the highest priority. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Spectrum News. This ill-considered move by these three countries demonstrates their preference for populist measures over a return to the rule of law. Although they have the right to criticize France and other colonial powers, their hypocritical turn to Russia as an ally is putting the region and world at greater risk. We also have an establishment critical narrative from the Tribune Online. It's ECOWAS' fault that these countries have made this decision. ECOWAS has failed to fulfill its founding mandate and find diplomatic solutions to a multitude of existing regional problems. Instead, the organization has turned into a tool of foreign interests to reinstate democratic puppet governments that fail at combating Islamist threats. Finally, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 61% chance that Mali will experience a successful coup d'etat before January 1st, 2040. On to Finland as Stubb wins the first round of the presidential election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Tulos Babelu, Reuters, Helsinki Times, Euro News, and the official website of the President of the Republic of Finland. Following the completion of preliminary calculations, former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb has won the first round of Finland's presidential election, 
receiving 27.2% of the popular vote. With a total turnout of 74.9%, or approximately 3.3 million votes, Stubb received approximately 882,000 votes in total, followed by Pekka Javisto at 836,000 votes, or approximately 26%, and Yusi Halaalo at 615,000 votes, or approximately 19%, and Oli Ren at 497,000 votes, or approximately 15%. Commenting on the results, while Stubbs stated that, quote, the competition will only begin now. Javisto, a former foreign minister of Finland, claimed that his priority was now to, quote, reach those whose candidate is not on the second round. The result is Finland's closest margin between two candidates since 1994. Sally Ninista, or NCP, Stubb and Tarha Halonen's SDP, Havisto will partake in a second round of voting on February 11th. A runoff is required in Finland's presidential elections if no candidate receives more than 50% of the vote. The vote comes as current president Sauli Ninista's second six-year term is set to finish in March this year and is ineligible for re-election. Duties of the Finnish president include leading the country as supreme commander of the defense forces, appointing and discharging governmental ministers, and leading Finland's foreign policy. Thanks, Eric. The right narrative spin comes from Helsingin Sanomat. A second round of voting places Stubb in the driver's seat to be Finland's next president. While Stubb and Havisto finish neck and neck, Finland's center-right voter bloc far supersedes the progressive and alternative option that the SDP appeals to. The cumulative total of Finland's left-wing voting base from the first round reaches only approximately 35%, simply not enough to take him over the line. In order to become president, Harvisto must convince a sizable proportion of the right-wing population that he is the man to lead Finland forward, a task much easier said than done. The left narrative comes from The Guardian. Harvisto's candidacy has survived the threat of the populist Hala Alo's recent polling surge and remains in the fight to historically become Finland's first openly gay president. An underdog for the entirety of the campaign, Trail Haristo's entry into the runoff should be considered in itself a success. And given the importance of the role of the president, there should be a sigh of relief that populism will not be allowed to direct the country's future. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Naikai Suomi. While the Finnish people will get to decide the next president, the survival of both establishment candidates will be a bitter blow for the average citizen. The reality is that over half of Finns wanted to see neither Stubbs nor Havisto continue to bow to the EU and ignore Finland's damaging loss of self-determination. The winning candidate will be the one that listens to the outcries of the people best and pledges once again to put Finland first. Manchin is still considering a third-party presidential run. Here are the facts as agreed upon by AJC, Washington Examiner, CNN, and Joe Manchin's website. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said in an interview over the weekend with CNN that he would not rule out a potential third-party presidential run, probably using state ballot lines that were secured by the bipartisan group No Labels. In the interview, Manchin called Democratic President Joe Biden a good, decent man, while expressing worry over what he called far, far-left liberals who are steering the current administration. Manchin also described the possible re-election of former President Donald Trump, the current frontrunner for the 2024 Republican nomination, is very much concerning to every human being who basically loves the country that we have. Although No Labels was established in response to polling that shows dissatisfaction among the electorate with a Biden-Trump choice and tribalism in politics, the group has been relatively quiet about meeting its mid-March deadline for deciding whether to enter a ticket into the race. 
On Friday, Manchin appeared at a town hall organized by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where he described himself as fiscally conservative and socially compassionate, and also said he wouldn't want to spoil Biden's re-election bid but would run if he sees a clear opening to victory. Previously, Manchin in November announced he wouldn't seek re-election to the Senate, instead opting to travel the country to gauge interest in a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Thanks, Scott, for presenting the facts. We have a round of spins, beginning with Narrative A, coming from NBC. Everyone who can do something to prevent the re-election of Trump to the White House must mobilize in that endeavor. Biden has moved too far to the left to provide the strongest challenge to the former president, so it could be time to find someone more middle of the road to challenge Trump. Such a campaign wouldn't spoil Biden's chances. It would save America from the clutches of authoritarianism. ABC News brings us the Democratic narrative. A presidential run for a third party would be a foolish move by Manchin, who risks putting the country in jeopardy and tarnishing his own legacy. Biden and his policies are plenty bipartisan, and he's getting things done he promised to do. Biden deserves a second term, and Manchin should stay away from being associated with no labels, which is a corporate-backed, problematic operation. The round of spins continues with the Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Joe Manchin is definitely right when he says that the Biden administration has been hijacked by the far left, but he doesn't seem to recognize that his entire party is overrun with extreme leftists. While Manchin's moderate approach as a red state Democrat may appeal to some voters, he would likely just eat into Biden's fraying support base. A third party run for Manchin would likely just increase Donald Trump's chances of returning to the White House. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 7% chance that Manchin will declare as a third party or independent candidate for the 2024 presidential election. The UK government plans to ban disposable vapes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, US News and World Report, Guardian and Associated Press. The UK government announced a plan on Sunday to ban the sale of disposable vapes as part of an effort to tackle the rise in young people vaping. While it's already illegal to sell vapes to anyone under the age of 18, according to the UK government, disposable vapes, which are often much cheaper and come in smaller, more colorful packaging, are a key driver behind the alarming rise in youth vaping. Under the plan, vape flavors would be restricted and packaging and displays would be required to be changed to make them less desirable to children. Also on Monday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reiterated his government's commitment to gradually phase out the sale of tobacco by making sure children who turn 15 this year and younger are never legally able to purchase tobacco products. The ban on disposable vapes and additional restrictions are likely to be put in place late this year or early next year through a mix of a bill as well as a secondary legislation. A second law banning the sale of tobacco products to anyone born on or after January 1, 2009 may be introduced in the same bill. In his announcement, Sunak said that adults who want to use e-cigarettes to quit smoking will still be able to access vape kits. Although the number of people who smoke in the UK has decreased by 66% since the 1970s, nearly 13% of the population still smokes. The UK will join a number of other countries that plan to ban disposable vapes, including Australia, France, Germany, and New Zealand. Narrative A comes from the BBC. Vaping is addictive and causes people to inhale harmful chemicals whose long-term impacts have not been fully studied. This law is a step in the right direction toward preventing children from vaping. Filter Mag gives us Narrative B. 
It's reasonable, of course, to restrict access to vaping products for children. That said, it's important to be wary of alarmist state overreach, like installing anti-vape sensors and closed-circuit televisions in schools that bring up serious privacy concerns. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they are saying there's a 50% chance that a country will implement a total civilian ban on the consumption and smoking of tobacco by June 2033. I heard a number recently that the U.S. economy is going to be damaged because that Ozempic, it's like an appetite suppressant weight loss thing. Right, uh, yeah. Apparently, the sales of snack foods, I'm not kidding, have gone down by so much because of this Ozempic that it's like threatening our economy. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> like, it's like a weird... <laughs> puzzles me about that statistic is you would think that the pot smoking culture in this country would offset... You would think Ozempic... snack <laughs> consumption. That's true. You know, Good know, point. Good anyway. point. <laughs> Our final story, an EU document calling for gender-neutral language is criticized. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Daily Mail, and the U.S. Sun. Conservative members of Parliament in the U.K. are calling out a 2019 document published by the European Institute for Gender Equality that calls for EU legislators to abandon so-called gendered language in favor of gender-neutral alternatives. The 61-page Toolkit on Gender-Sensitive Communication lists a series of commonly used words and phrases that are directly or indirectly associated with gender and provides alternative terms. For example, the document states that words like pushy and shrill are typically associated with women and should be replaced with assertive and high-pitched, respectively. It also lists terms like master of ceremonies, best man for the job, and no man's land, as phrases that should be abandoned for their gendered nature. Tory lawmaker Nick Fletcher slammed the EU guidelines as nonsense, arguing that the bloc has far more serious issues to be concerned about. He told The Telegraph, We've got wars being waged, an energy crisis, and a lot of countries are dealing with the same kind of problems that we are in the UK. Meanwhile, Member of Parliament Nigel Mills called the toolkit an attack on the English language. In 2022, the EU sparked outrage after it banned the word fishermen calling on EU staff to use Fisher people or Fishers. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The right narrative is our first spin. It comes from GB News. The EU's radical mantra about gendered language may be laughable, but it's also a dangerous threat to basic speech rights and language itself. Gender connotations are a core part of many languages. Moreover, the EU should be dealing with more crucial matters rather than committing time and resources to policing language. The pink news counters with a left narrative spin. The headlines make it seem like the EU is calling for a ban on certain words, when in fact this document is just asking people to consider more inclusive terms. If there are more important matters for legislators to handle, they should attend to them, rather than drumming up controversies about bad faith culture war topics. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.